of Russian military transport crashes, Russia, saying there were Ukrainian POWs on board, claims Ukraine shot it down. It is evident that the Russians are playing with the lives of Ukrainian prisoners. Israeli tanks shell a UN training center, sheltering displaced Palestinians. And millions of flip-flops wind up in the oceans and in landfills. But in Kenya, they're becoming art. Flip-flops are collected from weekly beach cleanups, waterways, and dump sites and brought into their warehouse. Today is Thursday, January 25th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. Palestinians gathered at the site of an Israeli airstrike on Rafa, southern Gaza, helping recover bodies from the rubble. In Khan Yunis, Israeli tanks fired shells into a United Nations training center being used to shelter Palestinians displaced by the Israeli-Hamas war. The UN said nine Palestinians were killed and 75 were injured when two tank rounds hit the building that was sheltering around 800 people. The United States said it was concerned by the attack. We deplore today's attack on uh, the UN's Khan Yunus training center. Um, you've heard me say it before, you've heard the secretary say it before, but uh, civilians must be protected and the protected nature of UN facilities must be respected. State Department Deputy Spokesman Vendant Patel. In Israel, thousands of Israelis marched around the Defense Ministry's compound in Tel Aviv calling for the immediate release of hostages. My brother, Dror, is 49 years old. He's being held in Gaza for 110 days. And we came here today to tell the Israeli government that we are demanding uh, them to do everything they can and to initiate another agreement with, with Hamas to release Dror and the other hostages right now, today, uh, sooner than tomorrow. Judges at the International Court of Justice will rule on Friday whether or not they will grant emergency measures against Israel following accusations by South Africa that the Israeli military operation in Gaza is a state-led genocide. The United Nations top court issued a statement saying the 17-judge panel will hand down its ruling in court on January 26, the 1200 GMT. Continuing retaliatory attacks and targeted assassinations along the Lebanon-Israel border are prompting warnings of an escalation that could unleash a wider conflict in the region. Dale Gavlik reports from Amman on this part of the story. Lebanon's Iran-backed Hezbollah militia said it targeted Israel's Northern Army Command, Mount Moran, base Tuesday, its second such attack on the post in recent days. Later Tuesday, Israeli warplanes fired missiles at Lebanon's southern districts of Bin Jabal, Nabatia, and Iqlim al-Tufah, destroying homes and wounding several people, Lebanon's national news agency reported. The border skirmishes have forced citizens on both sides to move further inland for safety. Lebanon's caretaker foreign minister, Abdelabou Habib, 
In remarks to the Council on Foreign Relations in New York this week, linked the retaliatory aerial bombings to the war in Gaza. It is minor fighting, and I don't think the intention is to have a big war. It has to do also with what's going on in Gaza. What's going on in Gaza is not acceptable Arab-wise, it's not acceptable world-wise. However, analyst Daniel Khalil Khati points to Israel's increasing use of targeted assassinations of Hezbollah and Hamas leaders in Lebanon, like Wissam At-Tawil and Saleh Arouri, as potential triggers for a wider conflict with Hezbollah. Khati, president of the Research Center for Cooperation and Peacebuilding in Beirut, told VOA Hezbollah is poking Israel, but it doesn't want an escalation. However, she says, an escalation can happen if the U.S does not rein in Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I think the Israeli army doesn't want to go to Lebanon because they know they cannot win. They can destroy Beirut. They cannot remove Hezbollah. But I see it escalating unless there is U.S. pressure. Professor Filippo Dionigi of the University of Bristol in Britain told the France 24 TV network that Israel's targeted assassinations have gone beyond the rules of engagement, opening the possibility to a greater escalation. The other possibility is arrow keys over shootings involving civilians to an extent that is greater than they are already involved in that can create unwanted consequences on both sides of the conflict and therefore open the possibility to a greater escalation, uh, even uh, the possibility of an all-out war, which is something that Israel has been threatening clearly and Hezbollah too has responded with the same tone to that kind of threat. Other observers say that Lebanon's dire economic crisis means there's little appetite for war with Israel, and Hezbollah would risk a significant public backlash. Tobias Bork, a researcher at the Royal United Services Institute in London, warned in Britain's Mail Online, as the Gaza war continues, I think the risk of something going wrong compounds the longer this goes on. Del Gablak, VOA News, Amman. Following these other stories from around the world, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said he and Iranian counterpart Ibrahim Risi have agreed at a meeting Wednesday on the need to avoid steps that could further threaten Middle East stability three months into the Gaza war. Argentina's largest union started a 12-hour strike Wednesday with tens of thousands of workers demonstrating in the heart of Buenos Aires against tough economic austerity measures and reforms by the new libertarian president, Javier Millet. The action hitting sectors from transport to banks is the biggest show of opposition to Millet's plans for spending cuts and privatization since he took office last month, pledging to fix an economy reeling from a 211% inflation and crippling debt. An official in Mali says more than 70 people are dead after an unregulated gold mine collapsed late last week. And the search continues amid fears the toll could rise. A senior official in the government confirmed the details to the Associated Press and called it an accident. Accidents like this are common in Mali. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Wednesday met the leader of Chad, Mahmet Idris Tebi, in the Kremlin, courting a country that had previously maintained a pro-Western policy and spurned Russia's recent outreach in the Africa-Shahil region. 
U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been visiting Nigeria as part of his four-country African tour against a backdrop of rising insecurity and growing Russian influence following several coups in West Africa. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. Former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley said she plans to stay in the race for the Republican presidential nomination despite losing the New Hampshire primary to frontrunner and former President Donald Trump. Reuters' Alex Cohen has more. Donald Trump reacted with fury after his Republican rival in the presidential primary, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, vowed to fight on rather than drop out of the race. Who the hell was the imposter that went up on the stage before and, like, claimed a victory? Trump won New Hampshire's primary contest Tuesday night, but not by the margins he'd hoped for a knockout blow, beating Haley by about 11 percentage points. That's a far narrower margin of victory than the former president and current Republican frontrunner enjoyed in the Iowa contest. And Haley is counting on it, giving her the momentum to continue. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. And the next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. If you didn't know what was going on, you'd say she's really on a tear. William Howell is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. He said Haley remains a long shot to win the nomination, and she has her work cut out for her. She's going to need the month. She's going to need to set to work um, to shift the the narrative of this race, um, call him out repeatedly for being unwilling to meet her on the on the debate stage, these kinds of things, and and try to make the claim that she is the face of the future of the Republican Party in ways that he is not. Haley has made the case that Donald Trump is too mired in chaos. Donald Trump. You have one bout of chaos after another. This court case, that controversy, this tweet, that senior moment. You can't fix Joe Biden's chaos with Republican chaos. Howell says she's going to have to confront him more directly if she wants to win. She's going to have to come out and say that she's, he's unfit for office, uh, that he, he, he doesn't represent core interests of, of the party and of the nation. She's going to have to, to actually land some punches. Trump doesn't have any patience for any of that and was aghast that she didn't promptly you know, remove herself from the race in the aftermath of tonight's performance in, in New Hampshire. Um, uh, and, and so she's going to have to yeah, get in close and land some body blows if, if, if this, uh, these dynamics are going to shift and play to her favor. But she's got a long way to go. Haley's performance in New Hampshire and her pledge to fight on means that for Trump, for now, he cannot yet focus all of his attention on Democratic U.S. President Joe Biden and the November general election. The next big test will likely be the South Carolina primary, where one average of polls put Trump 37 points ahead of Haley. Reuters correspondent Alex Cohen. The United Auto Workers Union leader endorsed U.S. President Joe Biden's re-election bid Wednesday with a fiery speech in Washington that was also harshly critical of Republican former President Donald Trump. Joe Biden bet on the American worker while Donald Trump blamed the American worker. 
We need to know who's going to sit in the most powerful seat in the world and help us win as a united working class. So if our endorsements must be earned, Joe Biden has earned it. In accepting the endorsement, President Biden said, When Donald Trump was in office, six auto factories closed around the country. Tens of thousands of auto jobs were lost nationwide during Trump's presidency. During my presidency, we've opened 20 auto factories and more to come. We've created more than 250,000 auto jobs all across America. A Russian military transport plane crashed Wednesday in a border region near Ukraine. The crash was captured on cell phone video. Moscow accused Kiev of shooting it down, saying all 74 people aboard were killed, including 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war, headed for a swamp. Video of the crash on social media from the border region with Russia showed the plane falling from the sky in a snowy rural area and a massive ball of fire erupting where it apparently hit the ground. It is evident that the Russians are playing with the lives of Ukrainian prisoners, with the feelings of their families, and with the emotions of our society. It is necessary to establish all clear facts to the extent possible, considering that the plane crash occurred on Russian territory beyond our control. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky calling for an international investigation. Joining us now to talk about this is William Courtney. He is a RAND senior fellow and was ambassador to Kazakhstan, Georgia, and the U.S. Soviet Bilateral Consultative Commission. He's also special assistant at the White House for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Uh, needless to say, it's unclear exactly what the facts are in this story, yet it's, it's just happening. However, it would not be unlike Russia to manufacture a lot of the information that they're giving out? There are several anomalies, as you've probably seen just by looking at the uh, media, that the plane might have been flying in the wrong direction uh, for carrying POWs to an exchange site. The exchange site that it's typically used is, uh, I think, 95 kilometers away and is not really reachable by aircraft like that. Uh, So that those could be factors suggesting that uh, you know this is not what it is. Um, there's some speculation that the size of the explosion suggested that some of the cargo was of combustible material. Uh, but again, it's just it's really too early to, to draw definitive uh, conclusions. Uh, there was a comment on social media that the uh, Russian uh, telegram channels and uh, some other media swung into action quite quickly, suggesting that um, maybe the, this was a pre-planned operation. Um, I think that was uh, a possibility when Prigozhin's aircraft was shot down, how um, quickly Russian uh, propaganda swung into action. President Zelensky accused Russia of playing with the emotions of Ukrainians um, by using the POWs, whether they were on the plane or not on the plane, as you say, it's too early to tell, but uh-huh. using them in this way in 
their media attempt to discredit Ukraine. Yes, well, that, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. That would follow a pattern, though, that Russia uses. Oh, yes. Um, now, you saw also, I think, probably on the media, that uh, of the alleged list of people appeared on the plane that some, you know, a dozen and a half of them have already been exchanged in the past. So, um, one issue that always comes up in this circumstance is, is if Russia is dissembling on this. Um, and we saw this with MH17, uh, a number of aspects of it. Russians advanced multiple uh uh, possible explanations, including one bizarre that the, all the people on MH17 were already dead when they got on the airplane. Um, that um, you tend you look for anomalies to try to assess uh, assess the validity of Russian claims. Well, if, for example, the passenger list that Russia is is making public. Um, has people who've already been exchanged, you know, suggests a trade craft deficiency, as they say, in the in the intelligence business. So we, you know, we will see experts over the next day or two really focused on um, the possibility of, you know, to what extent was this staged or Russia's assembling or Ukraine is not fully. Um, being full and open about it, uh, and looking at anomalies uh, and potentially you know, tradecraft deficiencies is a typical way that that people try to assess things like this. Uh, again, this is we saw this more dramatically with NH17 shoot down. So there do appear to be some anomalies so far, including the the uh, flown to the place where they would be exchanged. William Courtney, a RAND senior fellow. And finally, flip-flops are one of the most popular types of footwear on the planet. Some people call them skiffs. I can't tell you how many pairs of them I've owned in my life or where they are, even the pair that I currently own. But I can tell you that millions of them wind up in oceans and dumps and landfills all over the world. Now, a Kenya-based company has found a creative way to reuse them, and VOA Nairobi Bureau Chief Mariama Diallo tells us what they do with them. Hundreds of thousands of discarded flip-flops arrive regularly at Ocean Soul, a Kenyan-based company. Joe Mwakiremba has been working for the company for about 10 years. Ocean Soul was founded uh, on the premise of cleaning our oceans and waterways, at the same time employing lots of artists from high-impact communities here in Kenya. He says flip-flops are collected from weekly beach cleanups, waterways and dump sites and brought into their warehouse. They weigh the material and pay collectors about 18 cents per kilogram. Then, to prepare them for carving, they are first hand-washed one flip-flop at a time. The next stage for our smaller and medium sculptures, we have a die-cut machine that will punch out a template of a giraffe or a lion or, an, or a rhino. Those templates are joined together with glue and then carved out into that respective animal. For life-size pieces, the company reuses an additional material. Our biggest sculptures on the inside are 
they use the polystyrene material. This comes from shipping companies, they use them as insulation. When they get worn out, they throw them away. So the inside of the bigger pieces is this material carved out into the shape of the giraffe or elephant, then padded with the flip-flops. Using a machine, the pieces are then sanded before being cleaned again and readied for shipment. Florence Auma is an artist who's been working for the company for 14 years. She had to learn the art of carving from scratch. Started with washing, and then I started with blocking, and then I am the first female carver in this company. So I was carving. Now I am happy because I have so many things. I have many skills in this company. Skills that have allowed her to be able to carve just about anything like these coasters and to travel the world to showcase her talent. Maki Remba told us one of the largest pieces they made was a life-size car for a Honda dealership in Huntsville, Alabama that took 2,500 flip-flops and three months to make. Ocean Soul is now collaborating with a design artist from Uganda who lives in Finland and owns a gallery there in one of their biggest projects to date. Lincoln Kaiwa, who's used materials such as ceramic, granite, wood and glass, has decided to try something new with flip-flops. He recently traveled to Kenya to finalize a furniture project to be launched in April during Milan Design Week in Italy. The, the project, it has um, 14 different pieces, so you're just seeing just three of them. Uh, of course, it's a win-win situation. The more flip-flops are used, it means that the more uh, flip-flops that have been taken out of the um, environment, for me, that's the meaning of sustainability. In 2023, the company recycled about 750,000 flip-flops. This year, it aims to recycle about one million. Maria Magalu, VOA News, Nairobi. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you so much for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States is committed to deepening, strengthening, and broadening its partnerships across Africa, partnerships that benefit Africans and Americans alike, declared Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Cape Verde, his first stop in a four-nation tour of the continent. He hailed the solid economic partnership the U.S. shares with the Portuguese-speaking archipelago of around 500,000 people. It is um, extraordinary that Cabo Verde is the first country to complete two Millennium Challenge Corporation compacts, and now you're starting to build a third one. I'm deeply uh, honored that we were able, through one of the compacts, to make uh, substantial investments in the port here of uh, Praia, and that's had manifest uh, benefits for the port. With health and health security on the agenda for discussion, Secretary Blinken congratulated Cape Verde for achieving its malaria-free certification. He also lauded Cape Verde's political stability. I have to also tell you that for the United States, Cabo Verde is truly a beacon of stability in the region at a time when there is more than our share 
of instability and challenge. And, of course, that goes well beyond the region of West Africa. We see it in different parts of the world. The United States has been proud to partner with Cape Verde on law enforcement and drug interdiction, seizing more than 30 tons of cocaine in recent years. Multilateral organizations like the Partnership for Atlantic Cooperation, where Cape Verde is playing a leading role, stand to benefit both the United States and Cape Verde. Secretary Blinken noted that Cape Verde's strength is in its commitment to peace, security, stability, and democracy. And we want to leverage those strengths to the benefit of Cabo Verdeans, but also Americans, and in fact, the entire world. So it's in that spirit that we're here, said Secretary Blinken. A spirit of partnership, a spirit of admiration for the work that you've done, and a determination to do even more together between the United States and Cape Verde. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 